When is the best time to nap and what is the ideal length? How can you rethink your diet to help you get a better night's sleep? What does COVID somnia mean? Today, sleep neurologist and the director of the UCLA Sleep Disorder Center, Dr. Alan Avidan, explains the impact of COVID-19 on our sleep behavior and shares strategies to get a better night's sleep. Dr. Alan Avidan, such a pleasure to have you here today. And I was so grateful when I opened up your email a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things you sent me and really picked my curiosity and made me want to interview you for this podcast was this concept of COVID somnia. Before we talk about COVID somnia, I'd like to have you explain to me why quantity and quality of sleep is so important for us all. Thank you so much, Dr. Slosser, for having me on board. And it's always nice to speak on a, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, uh, sleep medicine. And this is such an important period of time in everyone's lives eh, where things are not the same. And something we take for granted, sleep, is nothing but routine since the pandemic. And I'm so delighted that you are having me on the show to talk about sleep. Your first question is a very important one sleep duration and sleep regularity. Sleep duration is by age. And duration of sleep, we mean specifically how much time the patient is, is actually sleeping. And oftentimes patients forget that we're not really talking about the time in bed, but we're talking about the time in which they're actually sleeping. And for people over age 18, the recommendation by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the Sleep Research Society, and the National Sleep Foundation all recommend seven to eight hours of sleep duration on a regular basis. So the duration is ideally about eight hours. Regular sleep implies that you go to bed and wake up at the same time every single night. Now, why is that important? Well, it turns out that having a regularly occurring sleep timing aligned to the outside environment, to the light and dark cycles outside, is important for proper circadian function. And what do I mean by that? Well, you all know that the eye serves two functions specifically, vision and circadian regularity. And when we're getting light and darkness signals from the environment, we're using the eye to tell the circadian clock in the brain when to go to bed and when to wake up. So typically speaking, when the sun goes down and people uh, kind of have dinner and relax and socialize, watch TV, etc. And by 11 o'clock, 12 midnight to the latest, most people go to bed and having an established normal pattern that is aligned with the outside environment is very important to maintain proper circadian function. This is really critical because every cellular process that takes place in the body is timed to that circadian clock. So when growth hormone is produced in children, it's timed when slow-wave sleep occurs, and that's regulated by the circadian patterns. Timing of immune response, immune function, very critical during the pandemic. Low sleep, less than six hours of sleep reduces your immune response. Lower immunity, you're going to be at higher risk for the pandemic, particularly even after getting vaccinated. The vaccine may not work as well. 
timing of the turning on and off of certain physiologic uh, functions that relate to metabolism and handling of sugar in the bloodstream is all related to that circadian function. And delay or abnormal advancement of that circadian pattern is often associated with more abnormalities in normal physiology. Take, for example, I'm going to, I'm not going to be very specific. I'm just going to give you one specific example, which relate to how you do when you have jet lag. Just two hours or three hours difference between here in LA and New York City. The first day, the first day or two, most people feel a bit lousy. They're tired the next day. They can think right. They often have stomach issues. And it all starts because our bodies need to adjust to a new level of physiology to handle when we usually eat, when we're having conversations and we make sense during the conversations. That all has to do with when the circadian function and how quickly it's able to adjust to that new time zone. And of course, with the pandemic, things have gotten fairly abnormal in terms of the sleep duration and equally and perhaps more abnormal related to abnormalities in circadian timing of one's uh, bedtime. So I know this is a very long-winded answer to a rather simple question, but it's a very critical question that is really fundamental. We can talk about sleep without talking about, well, what, what is normal sleep? Well, starting with the basics, like what you just described to us, duration and routine, it sounds so simple. So let's start with a few follow-ups on duration. What happens if you aren't sleeping through, like you might get seven hours, but you wake up in the middle of the night? Really, really important. So sleep duration and the fact that you have uninterrupted sleep, that is absolutely critical. I'll give you an analogy. Imagine that you're putting a cake in an oven and the instructions are you have to live it for an hour and you shouldn't take it out and just live it and it will rise. Same with sleep. If you take that cake every 10 minutes, every 20 minutes and check on it, it will never rise. With sleep medicine, the same principle applies. When you go to bed, and hopefully you go to bed at a regular time and you wake up at a regular time. But during that seven or eight hour interval that you're in bed, it's preferred and it's physiologically more normal to have continuous sleep, uninterrupted sleep. What happens when sleep is interrupted and why would sleep be interrupted? Well, sleep may be interrupted in the beginning of the night. We call this sleep onset insomnia. It may get interrupted in the middle of the night. We call this sleep maintenance insomnia. Or it may be disrupted towards the tail end of the early morning. We call this early morning awakening. And knowing the timing when one wakes up can tell us some very interesting anecdotes about the conditions that it may have that might precipitate this. So for example, early morning awakening is depression until proven otherwise. And we see that very often that individuals who have awakenings at three, four, five in the morning, way before the alarm, are often may have an underlying history of depression. Now, sleep onset insomnia, on the other hand, is often related to anxiety, stress, and we call it sleep onset insomnia. It's often a, related to a condition type 
response in that the individual is uh, associating the bedroom and the bed itself with not good sleep. That that is, uh, they associate the environment as a place where they should worry and plan and make all kinds of lists in their mind. And it's hard for them to shut their brain off. That is often what manifests as sleep onset insomnia. Now, in the middle of the night, if you have a hard time maintaining sleep, that is often related to either noise coming from the environment or the bedroom not being at the right temperature, being a bit on the cooler or more on the hot side. We like the temperature to be about 60 to 65 degrees. I know that's a bit cool, but that's the ideal proper temperature for your bedroom. And there are noises also, environmental insomnia. If you live by the airport, the noise, the outside environmental noise is sufficient to create environmental insomnia. And add on top of that is the fact that many people will have other medical conditions, primary sleep conditions and medical conditions that can disrupt their sleep continuity. Some examples include untreated sleep apnea, pain, problems related to nocturia, which is excessive urination at night, medications that may disrupt sleep architecture, as well as conditions related to menopause. Women going through menopause experience hot flashes and very unstable sleep and disrupted sleep during the menopausal and perimenopausal period. Now, when we're talking about the proper and the ideal time that someone spends in bed, it's all about spending seven to eight hours in bed and taking it in one chunk. And the other thing, Wendy, is we often see patients who tell us, yes, we're sleeping for seven or eight hours, but it's not only at night. It may be four or five hours at night and then a two or three hour power nap in the middle of the day. Sleep is not additive. Sleep is not a bank account. You can average time of sleep you get in a 24-hour period and say that it all averages to about seven or eight hours if it's very fragmented, it doesn't work the same. It's like that cake that never rises. If you're sleeping less than that seven or eight hour period, you're never going to wake up feeling refreshed, irrespective of the fact that you got seven or eight hours during that 24-hour period. It has to be taken all at once at night for that particular duration without uh, having too many interruptions. Well, that just piqued my curiosity for so many more questions. For instance, what else would we be doing in bed that might create a longer latency before we go to sleep? Well, I can tell you about my patients, many of whom are students as well as faculty. And so the bedroom becomes a, a place for work. The mobile devices are often used before bedtime uh, to check the news and answer email, text. And sure enough, you find that people are often relying on electronics and gadgets that emit blue light. That's the danger of these devices is that when people are using them, the light intensity and the light wavelength that the devices emit is enough to stimulate the circadian clock and turns it on and often delay the release of melatonin, which is often ideal when darkness and light exposure stimulates the circadian clock and hence it uh, 
often creates a situation where the patient may actually find it hard to fall asleep and they may end up waking up prematurely. 20 minutes, one hour flight exposure. But you know, most of my patients say that they're doing homework late at night and they often delay and push and make all those uh, requirements that often require them to use a computer to be pushed towards uh, 11 p.m. midnight. And we all know that that's very detrimental to the normal cyclicity of the circadian rhythm. So blue light is ab- absolutely an enemy. And I usually tell people, you know, by nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, you should probably put it away. And if you need to read, you can read uh, by dim light, but not watching TV, working on computers, electronics are not recommended. And also what you read is important. When I tell patients to read something and before going to bed, instead of using a computer, we don't want them to read novels or the Da Vinci Code. They will not be able to fall asleep until the next day. <laughs> so we, we often recommend something that's not interesting. If it's not interesting to the patient when they're reading, it's actually beneficial. Hmm. If it's interesting, the patient keeps reading it, then I think we lose that a therapeutic effect of trying to make the patient a bit bored and sleepy so they can go back to bed and and actually be able to sleep in their own bed uh, soundly. That's great. Well, so I guess in bookstores, if there are some in near you, you could have a whole section of boring books that you could buy. <laughs> <laughs> and that could be a part of the wellness section. Exactly. Uh, really reserve that time before bed for relaxation and really for your own ability to unwind. You know, we don't need to have a electronic device to unwind. That's a technology that should be put away before you go to bed. Well, we won't get into which boring books we would recommend because we might insult <laughs> someone that's listening. So we'll we'll pass on that question. But I have a couple of other questions related to duration, and especially given the fact that you've mentioned three times you could have trouble sleeping or staying asleep. And one of them comes to mind, especially when you think of circadian rhythm, which is food and alcohol. What would you recommend individuals about that? Sure. So let me address alcohol first. Alcohol is very enticing because it makes you relaxed. And when you go to bed, you, you fall asleep fairly quickly. But then the problem is when you go to bed, you stop drinking. And that's the problem because as the alcohol levels begin to drop, when your body metabolizes the alcohol, your wakefulness centers begin to fire up because you've just taken a hypnotic in a way. So the problem with alcohol is as the blood alcohol levels drop, your sleep becomes more fragmented. There are many more awakenings and arousals two or three hours after you go to bed. Sleep apnea becomes worse. You wake up more groggy. When you look at the brain waves of patients who have taken alcohol, it looks like a brain wave of someone who is in severe pain in the hospital. Very fragmented. The deep levels of sleep are often disproportionately high, REM sleep is delayed, and the entire ability to have a natural rhythm goes into chaos. That's just one night of having, let's say, one or two glasses of wine. But if you then rely on alcohol to help you fall asleep every single night, 
Well, after a while, you find that one or two glasses of wine is not doing it because you develop tolerance. So you need more. And after a while, you find that you, the patient begins to consume more alcohol in a fashion that eradicates any normalcy about their sleep. They have more degree of sleep apnea because alcohol also relaxes the upper airway muscles, making apneas more likely to occur, and that can be very disrupted. So we recommend people to give themselves about four or five hours before going to bed. If they do have a drink socially, that they should try to give it a little bit of time before going to bed and time the alcohol so it's not close to bedtime. Let's talk about dietary items. So definitely chocolate is not allowed mm. <laughs> um, at night. <laughs> at night. Exactly. Chocolate is, of course, allowed during the day. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. I've seen uh, children who are having chocolate ice cream and just this chocolate ice cream can do it. And I've, I've heard from a parent who I told him to stop the chocolate ice cream and her three-year-old is now sleeping better. So it's it, you have to really inquire about, you know, not only caffeine, not only chocolate, but foods that contain chocolate. And and it doesn't have to be dark to have caffeine in it. Definitely avoiding caffeine and definitely avoiding a heavy meal, but avoiding fatty foods and heavy foods because they, then they tend to create more problems with gastric reflux. If patients ask me what diets I, I would recommend, let's say if someone's hungry before bedtime, I recommend having a banana, having uh, a little bit of yogurt, granola, having some nuts. Those are foods that are high in tryptophan. Tryptophan is a precursor to melatonin. And we call those compounds soporific, meaning that they're very sleep-inducing. One other food item that has a lot of tryptophan in it is turkey. And that's why everyone feels a, a bit sleepy after Thanksgiving a turkey dinner. So those are helpful items to consider. There's one other recommendation that I often make to patients, uh, which is actually trying tart cherry juice. Tart cherry juice. And you don't have to have a lot of it. It's only about two ounces. It has a melatonin and a tryptophan sleep-inducing substances that is natural and actually works pretty well for many patients who have problems falling asleep. It cuts down the, the latency to sleep, which is the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep. And it's natural. It's not a pill. So people are more reassured by the fact that it's a really a dietary supplement. That's a great tip. Something I've not heard of. Where do you get tart cherry juice? Whole Foods, Trader Joe, you probably have it anywhere. You can get it actually on Amazon. You can get tart cherry juice capsules. So oh if you <laughs> if you're traveling and you don't want to take any beverage or yeah, you can take the capsules. So what we've just covered is a huge array of not only issues, but also opportunities for enhancing your duration of sleep. And you mentioned a few items that actually do make me think of what people have been doing more of in the COVID period. And it really leads us to not just discussions of duration or you know the latency of going to sleep, because we know everyone's been binging or including me on, you know, different series. But um, the regularity is another piece that you mentioned. And that 
not only is important for a healthful sleep, but also one area that I'm sure many of us have had challenges during this period of the pandemic. So that might get us to this looming question in all of our brains is what do you mean by COVID somnia? Yeah, so euphemetically, COVID somnia is a term that's been applied to the uh, abnormal sleep patterns and insomnia during the duration of this unprecedented pandemic. And it relates to the fact that there are specific observations about the pattern of insomnia in that people do experience, have experienced difficulties with uh, anxiety, stress, fear of the unknown, difficulties falling asleep. And that is specific in relationship to the pandemic uh, pattern. Very interestingly, there is a model that helps explain the chronicity of insomnia. It's for people who really want to know. It's called the Spillman 3P model. And it uses the following predisposing factors, precipitating factors, and perpetuating factors. Insomnia is crossed above its threshold to become clinically apparent when one has a precipitating event after having certain predisposition to insomnia, which is often related to genetics and having a prior history of learned insomnia, that something happens, something both good and bad. Marriage is a positive aspect that can trigger insomnia. Death of a loved one, surgery, pandemic, that's a trigger. We found that uh, amongst many patients who saw us recently, when we asked them when things started, and the majority went back to March of 2020, when they started to stay at home. They were away from family, friends, social interactions, social cues that often help provide a signal for maintaining sleep-wake regularity. What else has happened? You have to stay home. You do not go to work. And we found that people are not getting light exposure. So now we have no social cues, no light exposure. People are almost very similar to living in a cave. You begin to lose sight of when it's dark and when it's light. And we found that people who have a certain circadian predilection to uh, go to bed later at night, those are called the owls. Mm-hmm. No, you, you have two types of individuals based on their sleep-wake preference. You know, and those are phenotypes, meaning they characterize the sleep-wake patterns in individuals. There are the evening type, which are the owls, and the morning types, which are the larks. And you're one or the other. You can't change an owl to a lark. And you, yeah. you know, that's part of your genetic package. What we found is that individuals who are relatively prominent owls became even more owl-like in having a more delayed pattern of sleep. That's another aspect of the COVID somnia sort of definition in that in some individuals, there was some preservation. The duration has remained the same, but the patterns have gotten that people are going to bed late. Now, this is important because The delayed sleep phase pattern is often associated with weight gain, and that is really critical. So despite the fact that they were getting regular sleep, the patterns were delayed in a manner that they were going to bed at 2, 3, 4 in the morning, waking up at 10, 11, midnight, some even later, and they were gaining weight. 
And that is fascinating because it talks about the fact that earlier on, I mentioned that sleep and circadian patterns are very much aligned in a manner that it has to occur in some degree of regularity. And when you don't have that regularity, you begin to see metabolic disturbances. And one of those is related to a pre-diabetic type condition. And it's often related to loss of sleep as well as delayed sleep that often made people more obese, caused them to gain weight, and also became somewhat diabetic. And that may be related to the fine control of blood sugars in the body related to specific hormones that are released in response to light and darkness. Those disturbances in the timing of the release take place or decrease ability of one ability to control the blood sugars. So that is very problematic particularly because of the fact that we've seen more of an obesity epidemic during this pandemic. That is a really fascinating interpretation of what I've seen in my work, where you will see people with less sleep maybe gaining weight, but not necessarily people who have a healthy duration, but they've just created a shift where they're spending more time sleeping in the daytime. Is that what you're trying to say? Exactly, exactly. For these owls, the recommendation, even though they might have a tendency to go to sleep later, they really should be trying to sleep during a good portion of the night if they can. Yes, and there are ways that we can help them achieve that. So one of the problems, of course, is the fact that the individual is getting abnormal signals of excessive light exposure during the nighttime, during the evening time, and lack of light exposure during the morning. Okay. So it's a, the light therapy is actually very, phototherapy, we call it, is very effective in trying to mitigate and improve the, and align people to a more natural, normal cycle. So we often recommend the avoidance of the blue light after 9 p.m. And we often tell patients, get up at around 7 to 8 o'clock and go outside for at least 45 minutes to an hour to soak up some sun rays. The light exposure in the morning is going to help advance the circadian patterns, as well as the recommendation is for light, for a very low dose melatonin at 0.5 milligrams taken at around four hours before their bedtime. So if their bedtime is at three in the morning, they should be taking the melatonin at around 11 p.m. The problem is most patients who use melatonin take it right before they go to bed, which for a lot of people is three or four in the morning, and they take the wrong dose. They take three or five milligrams to achieve a realignment, resynchronization of the circadian pattern we have to use low-dose melatonin and time it early in the evening to advance and push the, the sleep timing to an earlier time zone and avoid the light exposure after 8 and 9 p.m. or so. And the other thing that works really well, and we'll know that through the work of Dr. Jerry Siegel, is drop in temperature. Because his work in the, uh, looking at the sleep patterns in hunters and gatherers in Africa has shown that the primary signals for sleep was the absence of light and the drop in temperature together was a powerful signal 
for the timing of sleep. So what we're trying to do also in, in our own patient population is create the bedroom is going to be a bit cooler. Now, for a lot of people, they can't turn the AC high enough or they, there is a central AC and one person in the house likes it a bit toasty. The other person has insomnia and likes it a bit cooler. So if that's an issue, there are some cooling pillows that one can get. One of them is called a Technogel cooling pillow. And that's a pillow that has a gel mechanism in it that acts as a heat sink. So it takes away excessive heat from the head and drops the temperature, allowing people to fall asleep and maintain sleep for a longer period of time. Wow. To unpack what you just said, which has so much information. One, yes, Dr. Jerry Siegel's amazing. And he also taught me how it's not the light that wakes you up in the morning. It's the rise in a little bit in the temperature that is happening. Exactly. It's totally what I didn't understand. You always think it's the light, right? Or the sun rising. I'd like to understand why is the sun so special in the morning or getting morning sun versus afternoon sun? What's... Oh, definitely. Remember, I mentioned that light is probably the most powerful circadian giver or zeitgeber. In German, it's a light giver. It is the signal that turns on the circadian clock. It tells you it's time to wake up. And the primary time in which the circadian clock is primed to interpreting the light signal is in the morning and in the evening. During the day, it's fairly neutral. So after 10 p.m. and before 5 p.m. or so, the light exposure is very neutral. But light exposure after 6, 7, 8 p.m. is going to turn the brain on. And that's treatment that we give people who go to bed too early. That's the opposite of the late sleep phase. So we know a population in, in older adults, there isn't the advanced sleep phase or kidney rhythm disorder where they go to bed early and they wake up early. So we give them light therapy in the evening time for the adolescents, for the extreme owls who need to advance their circadian patterns. We ask them to use a light therapy early in the morning at around seven to eight o'clock, because that's when you stimulate the circadian clock, keeps the wake centers alert and awake and allow that to then manifest and that wakefulness signal will exist and persist throughout the day. And you can also then add a power nap if someone is particularly sleepy, as long as it's not more than 10 minutes. But the critical issue is that in the evening time, you want to stop the light exposure after around 8 to 9 p.m. And to give a bit more signal for sleep, use of supplemental melatonin at 0.5 milligrams will be another chronotherapy that can actually be quite effective for those who are really challenged with delayed sleep phase pattern. To your question is, why is it sunlight? Well, sunlight is our primary light source. It is the one cue in the environment that our retina, the cells in the retina that then move on to make up the tract that goes and stimulates the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Historically and evolutionarily, we were adapted to that particular light source. So the problem is you you can't sit in front of a window and say, well, that's enough light for me for the morning. It has to be outside. And for people who are worried or cannot go outside because immobility issues or because they don't have enough light because they live in Fairbanks, Alaska, 
there are some light boxes that you can get. And you can get those on websites uh, and they cost about $50 to $100. But you have to make sure that it says 10,000 lux. Lux, L-U-X, is a unit of light intensity. And we want to make sure it's 10,000 lux because that's the light intensity of ambient light exposure in the middle of the day. So we've been talking about the owls and what you're describing is a way for the owls not to get carried away and go to bed at four in the morning if they get their circadian rhythm awakened by the morning light. Exactly. Okay, so that will help them get into a routine. So what about people who are, and this has been a big challenge, especially during the pandemic where you might be overworked or you're really working through the night. What kind of recommendations do you give, especially some of our frontline workers who, again, are being overworked and overtaxed once again? That's right, Wendy. This is a really, really difficult issue because work is often a priority. But when I see patients who are frontline workers, there still is a need to maintain a balance between life and work. And the problem is many individuals, the moment they come back after a shift in the hospital, they go and they check emails or they spend time in front of a computer or watching TV. So the light source is continuing to occur and increase the light exposure during a period which may not be ideal for the patient. What I tell people to do is as much as they can to give themselves some downtime an hour, two hours ideally, before going to bed. Many people work through the night, work until they're done. They go to bed and guess what they do? They sit in bed and they start thinking. And the bed then becomes a point of where you're planning things, where you are making lists of things you have to do the next day. And part of the cognitive and behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is a very powerful treatment uh, recommendation, for people who have chronic insomnia disorder is the one arm, of course, is to use hypnotic drugs that just make you sleepy, sedated, but don't really treat the underlying cause of the insomnia. Cognitive and behavioral therapy, in contrast, the patient learns how to sleep again. The sleep coach who delivers the cognitive and behavioral therapy helps give the patient some powerful tools to help them reassociate the bed in the bedroom with sleep. That is minimizing the time that they spend awake in bed, moving away electronics, cell phones, alarms, anything that's connected to electricity away from the bedroom area, and reassociating the need for sleep with the bed. And one of the techniques we do to make people sleepy is sleep deprivation. So if they only slept for three or four hours on one night, they cannot take naps and they, can, they cannot make up for it. We create the sense of sleep deprivation. And with that, when they're a bit more sleep deprived, when they go to bed in their own bed, all of the sudden they fall asleep quickly and they maintain sleep in that bed and slowly and surely begin to reassociate the bed with sleep. It takes about a week or two. It's a bit challenging to do because people do not like to be sleep deprived, but it works wonders. And it's the one thing we recommend is if you find that you are taking naps as you're sleep deprived, or if you're not sleeping well and you make up for it the next day, the pattern will just be perpetuated. So the third P that I mentioned, part of the Spielman model, is perpetuating factors that include actions and activities 
that are maladaptive. And one of them is a long nap. Another one is worrying about sleep. Another issue is using electronics, alcohol, caffeine, and all outside interference that often perpetuate the insomnia and, and just stay make it more chronic and more difficult to treat. But going back to the discussion about reassociating the bedroom with sleep through cognitive behavioral therapy is a technique that used to occur in person prior to the pandemic. So one good thing about the pandemic, not the pandemic is anything but a difficult time and period, but through the pandemic, we're able to adapt and innovate. And one of the innovations, of course, is telemedicine, We're seeing so many more patients, say, online. Some patients really like to be able to see their patients without driving on the Los Angeles freeways. And they can see us online by video. And cognitive and behavioral therapy for insomnia used to be very difficult to achieve before the pandemic because people had to drive and see their uh, providers uh, five or six times during the course of the therapy. And during the pandemic, when everything's online, it's easier. People are actually complying with it and they like it. And uh, there's more access. There is more availability of people to actually do it more effectively and efficiently. And the data shows that it's no less effective compared to in-person cognitive and behavioral therapy. Wow, that's very encouraging. It's always nice to have some gratitude, even in times of tragedy or pandemic era. I'm sure many people are wondering, you say a long nap. How long can you nap without disrupting your sleep? Oh, that's a question that I always like because most people know, but some people have this misconception about naps. So let me tell you what a power nap is. A power nap is strategic by time and by duration. And guess what a time is ideal? It's right after lunchtime, noontime to about 3 p.m. Just around that period of time, it's perfectly fine to take a nap. Now, the nap has to be short, 15 or 20 minutes, half an hour max. Once you begin to nap longer, if you nap 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, you're then likely to wake up when you're in slow wave sleep. And when you do that, you're depressed, you're confused, you're disoriented. That's called sleep drunkenness or increased sleep inertia, meaning that when you wake up after Coming out of slow-wave sleep, which occurs an hour after you fall asleep, you're more likely to be groggy. The nap is not going to be as restorative. You're more likely to be depressed, tired, and it's not going to be any benefit to you. So shorter naps partially restore sleep debt, especially early during the day between 12 to 3, 15 to 20 minute power nap, equivalent to a tall glass, about 20 ounces of caffeine, 200 milligrams of caffeine, and it's cheaper to do that. And you get the same benefit. It's such a tradition in many cultures. So that makes sense. People observed that it must have helped or enhanced their well-being. You've been mentioning different phases while you're asleep, assuming you're sleeping in a seven to eight hour period. And there was a number of research reports that you shared with me talking about dreams and and how dreams have been disrupted during the COVID period, and I guess at other times as well. I want to understand the power of dreams and the role of dreams. And also, there's a lot of conversation around vividness of dreams. Sure, sure. So 
first, it's very interesting that often as we go through the sleep cycle, we start at very light stages of sleep, stage one and two, and we go into the heavier, slower wave deep sleep. That's called slow wave sleep or stage three sleep. Stage one and two make up uh, the light sleep. And then after about 90 minutes, you go into REM. REM is rapid eye movement sleep. And that's when you're dreaming. That's when your muscles are paralyzed. That's when you're dreaming. That's when memory consolidation takes place. The same in slow wave sleep. And it's vital that you go through all the sleep stages in the sequence. We found that during the pandemic, because the patterns of sleep duration and regularity have been so abnormal and because people have been more stressed during this unprecedented period, there have been a, a number of reports of the so-called pandemic dream. I'm just looking at the international classification of sleep disorders that we're now updating. And there was one area that we wanted to update for the 2021 version is to create a new category of nightmares called pandemic dreaming, because pandemic dreaming refers to not only abnormalities of dreaming, but alteration of dreaming that is mediated by the lockdown during the pandemic. And individuals who have this problem are often depressed, anxious. They're generally younger women who suffer from poor sleep quality, disturbed nocturnal behaviors, anxiety, depression, and also very vivid dreaming that is very negative. Now, it's very different than a nightmare, which is often manifested with an arousal and an anxiety reaction to the awakening, to the arousal. That doesn't happen with the pandemic dreaming. So there is definitely an alteration in the content, along with the fact that those patients are also very depressed, very anxious, and have alteration in their dreaming and dream experiences. And why we dream I wish I knew the answer. You know, we probably need another 90 minutes to discuss the, the function of uh, sleep and the function of dreams. But dreaming is probably a way in which the brain learns to take experiences and put vital ones in special compartments to preserve those experiences for later use because they're evolutionarily advantageous and get rid of experiences that may not serve an evolutionary advantage. Now, this is a very, very basic and fairly simplistic view to look at dreams, but in essence, it's a way for the brain to go through like your defragmentation function on a computer and put memories, package them to make room for new and more memories that can be coming in the future, but to also form connections when those experiences experiences have a commonality and provide an evolutionary advantage to that uh, individual. The alteration of dreaming, of course, is brought by experiences that are fairly dramatic and fairly negative during the day. We, we know that very profoundly right after 9-11, the population in New York and Washington, D.C. reported significant levels of nightmares and, and dream alteration with the pandemic less nightmare type episodes, but more abnormalities in how patients interpreted what they were dreaming to be very negative, associated with more anxiety, more depression, 
and alterations of the dreaming to be more negative, in which the patient had to, for example, look for an exit to run away from negative experiences that may have some metaphorical uh, similarity to what they were experiencing during the daytime. Well, Alan, I think you're right. We might have to do another podcast if you're willing, because I think that this dream conversation, I have so many more questions. And what you're describing, just so I can understand about what you just mentioned about what you're experiencing during the day is then expressed through your dreams. One of the solutions would you think would be to address those emotions and worries in the daytime? I mean, would that be one way to address that challenge? Absolutely, Wendy. It's so true that one of the primary theories in how we manage patients with nightmares and abnormal dreaming is through a process, through a treatment called image rehearsal therapy, in which the patient is allowed to bring experiences that they see or images, visions that they experience during the hallucination, during the dream experience, and talk about it and form more positive anecdotes and positive associations with those negative uh, emotions. And the patient learns, say, mindfulness techniques and deep breathing exercise. So they're not going to react as negatively when they see those images and confronted with by similar hallucinations during a dream experience. They're not going to be as anxious. That's hopeful for many people. That's really, it sounds like you have a lot of answers and I'm looking forward to hearing more about the dreams in our next podcast. And I've learned so much from you and I'm looking forward to learning more. And before we end, is there anything that you'd like to add to what we discussed or any pearls of wisdom? As people are thinking about sleep, you know, sleep is one of the gifts that we often take away from. And remember, just just as you are eating, breathing, sleep is one of those vital functions. Do not forget to sleep. <laughs> it's often sometimes people forget that uh, it's uh, two or three in the morning and they just finish a Zoom call and, and they have to do homework. But you, you just have to make sure that you protect your bedtime. It's so important to your cardiovascular function to making sure you remain healthy and you retain a proper immune function. So thank you so much for everything you do. So appreciative, Alon, and looking forward to our next podcast. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's been a pleasure and happy to participate in the future. And good luck to everyone and stay healthy and well. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. For more information about today's episode, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcasts. Today's podcast was brought to you by the Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. To stay up to date with our episodes, subscribe to UCLA Live Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating to tell us how we're doing And if you think you know the perfect person for us to interview next, please tweet your idea to us at HealthyUCLA. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and we hope you join us for our next episode as we explore new perspectives on health and well-being.